Leaving back in Acts chapter 19, let's read first, and there's been a couple weeks, we'll have some review, and then we're going to see some new things, Lord willing, this morning. And it says at the end, if we're in, when, I mean, when we're in Acts chapter 19, verse 38 to 41, Acts 19, Wherefore, if Demetrius and the craftsmen which are with him have a matter against any man, the law is open. And there are deputies. Let them implead one another. But if ye inquire anything concerning other matters, it shall be determined in a lawful assembly. For we are in danger to be called in question for this day's uproar, there being no cause whereby we may give an account of this concourse. And when he had thus spoken, he dismissed the assembly. We'll talk about who that was here in a second. All right, going into chapter 20. And after the uproar was ceased, Paul called unto him the disciples and embraced them and departed for to go into Macedonia. And when he had gone over those parts and had given them much exhortation, he came into Greece. And there abode three months, and when the Jews laid wait for him, and he was about to sail into Syria, he purposed to return through Macedonia. And there accompanying him into Asia, so Peter of Berea and of Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Segundus, and Gaius of Derby, and Timotheus and of Asia, Tychicus and Trophimus. These going before tarried for us at Troas. And we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and came unto them to Troas in five days where we abode seven days. And upon the first day of this week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow, and continued his speech until midnight. And there were many lights in the upper chamber where they were gathered. I'm going to stop there because there's a crossover here and something major happens. But we got to lead up to that first. It's just a lot of information here. And there's, there's some important components that we see here in chapter 20 that teach us how we are to worship. When we live in a day and age where a lot of people have no idea how to worship the Lord. And this is another wonderful lesson that we get here. And who is writing this? Does anybody remember? Who's writing this? Nope. Nope. Dr. Luke. And then we see some verses that show here, we're going to look at that, that how Luke has just reunited with Paul. Remember, a lot of Paul's writings were not written by Paul. He, he, he dictated them. He had some real health issues, and he, ha, he had some serious issues with eyesight. And he had, he had a lot of his, his words writing. We just saw, well, real quick, Tychicus and Trophimus, they were messengers of him. And they delivered some of his epistles, and we'll see that. But here, Dr. Luke takes, the char- takes charge again, and he writes. When we get back to the end of chapter 19, remember what we were going through. And we didn't actually finish the last couple of verses. So I want to get back there a little bit, and then we'll go forward. But it's amazing how such great care did these idolaters of Diana take for the keeping up of the worship of gods made with hands, while the worship of the true and living God was totally neglected, and even the Jews missed this completely. Remember, the Jews come in, and they want to accuse Paul. They want to come out against him and the Christian church. And so it's amazing how they were blinded and did not see that the worship of Diana had also blasphemed Moses and blasphemed the first person of the Godhead especially, 
And they also blasphemed Christ alone because the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Jews wanted absolutely nothing to do with Christ. They didn't want him at all to be part of, of their worship. This is a very serious matter. And we see this even today in our own land. And we see a great distinction of what truth really is by these words. Remember, truth is not religion. And many times, most of the time, religion basically is not true. There is truth and there's religion. There's man's way and there's God's way. And that's always been a real, uh, that's been a real foundational principle all down through the ages. We worship the truth. We do not worship mankind and believe we can build our way to heaven or pay our way to heaven. And this is basically what the sentiment of the day was. We saw how that this big this theater of, that held 25,000 people was there. And Paul, actually, some of his, when we're going to read about them, some of his disciples had been dragged into this theater and it was a real hotbed. And so when all of this is happening, and very easily these Christian men could have been taken and executed, all of a sudden this, this, uh, this, this, this governor or this proconsul, or this, uh, um, he had all these names, he steps up and he says, wait a minute, we know of a truth, basically, that everyone, the community, the current community conscience is that no matter what happens, Diana is going to be worshipped. They can do nothing at all to stop it. They've done nothing to blaspheme Diana. They've done nothing to come out against us. We need to take due process, and we're not going to create any violence against Paul and his disciples. And that's basically where it's going to leave right there. And that was Christ himself withdrawing. He told Paul he would protect him. He was withdrawing all of this venom and all of this horrible violence and basically, Paul is able to leave and go pick up where he left off, where he was going to go to Macedonia. And this is what happens. And so when we're reading these last couple verses, we see that he had thus spoken and he had dismissed the assembly. And this was a town clerk. This town clerk had presided over many things. He was like, you know, you go into the Old West and the Dodge or whatever, you'd see you'd have one sheriff, and the sheriff basically did everything when it came to legislation. He would appoint sheriffs, he would appoint deputies, and he would take the uh, criminals into the court, and they had like one judge. That's what the, kind of what this was like. These small towns only had so many leaders in them, and that's what he did. But let's not, let us not make light of what's going on. This magistrate makes the disciples... He shows everyone how, how, how un, it's not sensible to have danger against these men. He quelled this rebellion. And what we know from a cosmic point of view, that the, for a lack of another better term, that this was a supernatural presence of the Lord protecting the Christian church. And he's done that all down through the ages. What did he tell Peter? He said, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church and will not eradicate them. Some may die. Some might be martyred for the faith. By my, by my grace, I will allow them to do that. But my church and my word is not going to be put out. And that's what we're seeing here right now. And we see how basically, sadly, the, the way that the magistrate calmed was by wicked means, by uplifting Diana. And we don't see at all that he turned to the Lord. 
if they would have made their violence and their wickedness against the law of God and the Old Testament dominion mandates of how to treat one another, this would have never gotten to this point, perhaps, that they would have believed in Christ. But this, they had nothing to do with this. They wanted to worship Diana, and this is how it ended. And the Christians, we see that they, have, they left. Paul leaves, and many of them are actually scattered, and they're put in other areas. And how many times have we seen that all down through the ages, how many times Christians have to be dispersed? And they have to leave their hometowns. We saw it with Priscilla and Aquila. They had to leave Rome. They were actually forced out. And they met up with Paul. Men's hearts are deceitfully wicked. Who can know them? As Jeremiah says. But we see here that they should have been far more worried about God. Bringing, bringing judgment predicated on God's law. Not what Diana had to offer. And we read in Ecclesiastes chapter 11 verse 9. Rejoice, O young man, in thy youth, and let thy heart cheer thee in the days of thy youth, and walk in the ways of thine heart and in the sight of thine eyes. But know thou, for all these things God will bring thee into judgment. And what this is saying is you walk in the law of the Lord and you walk in God's judgments, the Lord will protect you. There's nothing He won't do for you. But if you defy His law and you go against and you worship false idols, this is where the Lord will come against you. Now the town clerk has dismissed the assembly. He has ordered the complainant, that was Demetrius, basically to give notice and say to them, all manner of persons should live peaceably and go about their own business, and he has quelled the rebellion. This is the overruling providence of our Lord God Almighty, and it preserves public peace, and it causes what really this was, was a democracy to be dismantled and fall by its own weight. It was more of a democracy. What is democracy? It's mob rule, and that's exactly what it was. Our Lord steals the noise. He, he, our Lord, he, he steals away all of the violence against his. He calms the sea and the noise of her waves. And we can see another example of how many times through Scripture we can see through mobs of people the Lord has brought his people out. Teresa. I am in Acts chapter 19, verses 38 to 41, and we've just gone forward to Acts 20. And we see that the almighty power of God, he comes to the aid of Paul and to these disciples and the tumult of the people. And look in, in Psalm 65, 7, we read, which stilleth the noise of the seas, the noise of their waves, and the tumult of the people. And that is something, it's a wonderful verse that we can guarantee the Lord will still, he will calm the waves. Remember how Christ was in the back of the boat in the Sea of Galilee and he stood up and he said, peace be still. And that horrible, really hard storm, that great tempest, he no doubt stands up, puts his hands out and says, peace be still. And he calms the waters to teach us that he can calm the water, has the power to calm the waters in our life. And we can trust him to do that. Can someone look up Psalm 107? Before we go forward, we're going to see the calming of these storms, many times in Paul's life. And we're going to look at, look at a couple things. But can someone look up Psalm 107, verses 23 to 32, and read them, please? Whoever gets there first, just start reading them.
Then they cry unto the, then they that cry unto the Lord in their trouble, and he bringeth them out of their distresses. Thirty-two. Thank you. Thanks, Lisi. You see that? You see what the Lord does here? You know, if you, if you, you may not remember this, but we have sung this in the Psalter many times over the years. Psalm 107. And we see how the Lord calms the waters. And it says here, In the assembly of the elders, let them exalt Him also in the congregation of the people. And we're getting ready to go into worship. How did the Christian church worship? And we see that the very fact that we can take this last verse about the assembly and how this town clerk calms the assembly, the very first verse starts in chapter 20, and after the uproar was ceased. I don't take light of that. I don't think that's something that we should just pass over and not consider for a couple seconds. It could very well easily be said here that all of the Christian church and the disciples and Paul, every one of them were crucified, hung, or fed to the beasts. But Paul later on talks about the wild beasts. And, many, and, and two, two specific good commentators do believe that he is physically talking about what happened in the theater. But it says, and after the uproar was ceased. You know, we can say that a lot of times in our lives when we thought we were going through things we would never get through. When we trust the Lord and we get through them. We can say, and after the uproar was ceased. We have uproars in our lives, don't we? Things that come out of nowhere, tumults. And here the Lord brings them through this. And when before the Holy Spirit had told Paul that he was not ready to go into Macedonia, we now will see why. His life was in danger in other areas, not just at this theater. And so the Lord had him wait. And he protected him. And he had him strategically placed in a time frame that was the most but definitely the most, the safest way for him to get where he wanted to go to Syria. He winds up in Macedonia. He goes back to Philippi and he winds up going into Troas. And this is what happens. Paul travels a great length about Macedonia, Greece, and Asia, and he purposed to go to Syria. You would think that we are in the middle of writing right now an extended script of Raiders of the Lost Ark or something as we are following Paul's third missionary journey. And wait till we see next, the ne- our next meeting, which will be not next week, but the following week. Wait till we see verses 9 to 12, what Paul winds up doing here. Only this missionary journey is actually really unlike Raiders of the Lost Ark, where in reality, Harrison Ford spends most of his time trying to stop global warming. <laughs> Paul, he's the the real Indiana Jones. He's the one doing the work. He's the one creating all of this, creating all of these, all this education with archaeology and all. It's amazing how many things have been found from Paul's work. And he's the one out here doing these incredible things. We see here that this next event is incredible. Paul wants to get to Greece and go all the way and sail over a thousand miles into Syria. That was his original objective. But once again, the Holy Spirit stepped in and saved Paul by holding him back to go from Ephesus and wind up in Troas, we see here. So, so why, why didn't he go to Syria? Well, 
Some say that there were some angry, violent Jews laying wait for him. There are several possible reasons, actually, we can look at. First of all, it was the Holy Spirit's direction, but there are some other things that happened along the way. There's other reasons. Right now, the uproar has ceased at the theater. Paul embraces the locals who loved him and protected him, and finally, he's ready to set out for Macedonia. And I just love it many times when Paul leaves these areas. The disciples and those that worship with him, they come and they hug him. They, and they, they tell him how much they'll miss him. We'll see at the end of chapter 20 here how they actually cried, though the Ephesians did. And, and they just they loved his presence and they loved his encouragement. He, he departs and goes into Macedonia. He comes into Greece and he stays there for three months. And, what, and then he was supposed to go to Syria, but then he was supposed to go to Jerusalem. But it's incredible the violent nature of those that were laying in wait for him. <clears throat> they should have, the Jews should have been back, backing him, encouraging his mission. But basically what happens here, there is another objective that Paul had shared with Peter and the apostles, the elders in the Christian church. You have to ask the question, when Paul did these ministries and he went into these towns, and he went into these churches. Do you think people gave tithing? Do you think that they gave him money and they gave him help? Actually, Paul took care of most of his expenses. But yes, these little churches, they did honor the old, the old um, laws of tithing and giving. And what would happen is, Paul eventually, many times, would purpose to go back to Jerusalem. One of the reasons is he would take disciples with him to take the money bags and to give it back to the church. That's one of the things he would do. And that actually became very dangerous because of the marauders and those that would try to rob and kill. And so he had to be very careful where he went. And this was one of his jobs, is trying to get back to Jerusalem. And he's actually going to be warned not to go back there. And Paul says, I'm ready to die for Christ if that's what I have to do. But make no bones about it. My objective is to get back to Jerusalem, and that's what I'm going to do. And that's exactly what he, was, he, he, he had planned on doing. Remember, Paul had many loving friends. They loved one another, and it says here that they really were broken up over his departure, and we see that many times. I'm trying to stay close to my notes here because there's a lot of stuff here, and I don't want to skip. We would see now that Paul would visit the Greek churches. He had planted them, and more than once he had watered them, and he always waited for God to give the increase. And that's very important in ministry because today you see people planning, Talk to look at some of these big mega churches we've talked about. You see them planting and watering, but they're the ones that want to give the increase. And they want to, they want to pull the benefits out of the increase. They don't wait for God. That's called shepherding. Today, the church is basically nothing but a great big mega business is what it is. And so if you can take some kind of religion, put Christ in it somehow, and make it look all nice and shine it all up, you can do a lot of things to make money, but you gotta, there are certain things you have to not do in order to get there. First of all, you've got to keep this thing as far out of the pulpit as you can do it, and that happens a lot. That's why you have two hours of, of banging on the bongos, and you get 20-minute little interventions from these, from these. And I've talked to so many people that go to these churches, believe me. I've got enough witnesses that I know what goes on in these churches. And so basically what they want to do... They want to get people in, they want to plant, they want to water by all their advertising and demographics, and then they want the increase, and they want to make the increase. And that's how they make all this money. Well, Paul didn't do that. You didn't see Paul, 
You didn't see Paul going around with any riches or anything real fancy. He was as poor as a church mouse, and he waited for the Lord. And everything he had was he waited for the Lord to give him, to direct him, whatever he did. And that's what happened. <clears throat> he, would visit, he would visit these churches. He would, he would shepherd them. And he would go into these next areas. Here we see he first goes to Macedonia. He visits, he visits the church of Philippi, Thessalonica, and giving them much praise for the Lord and exhortation. He, it was important to remember that basically he was there to worship, and this is where this all funnels into, to have a beautiful worship service. And it says that they broke bread. They had communion because they wanted to honor this beautiful, recent resurrection of Jesus Christ that had not happened that long ago. And they were getting together all in accord in order to recognize that. Some things happen along the way here. He stayed in Greece. He stayed in three months in Greece. Then he went to Achaia. Then he purposed to go to court as we had seen back in chapter 1921. And I think that's an interesting statement. Because if you read commentators of old, they call entering into the sanctuary to worship the Lord on the Sabbath day the Christian court. That's when we convene for court. That's when we were opened up. The sanctuary of God is open to the sanctuary of churches that are Bible-believing churches that believe the Lord, and it is called a court. Now, you know what happens in court cases. When you get a letter in the mail and you've got to go to court... Do you make up the day that you go? Does the judge tell you what time you need to be there? And you call him and say, wait a minute, I'm sorry. I got golf that day. Judge, can, you, can we do it later on in the day or maybe next month? No. When that court date is given, you better be there. And if you've got to change it, because the only way you're going to be able to change is you better have a really good excuse and you might be able to get away with it one time. But that judge is going to tell you how to convene in court how to react, try to walk into a courtroom and wear a hat. They tell you to take the hat off, turn the cell phones off, everything they say, they got armed guards, you're going to do what they say. And we're going to learn here, this is exactly what the Lord does on the Sabbath day. When we're meeting and we are worshiping Him, we are in session, we are in court, and we are to do it exactly how the Lord tells us to do it. Just like He gave the, all the statements in the old, in the old law, and in the Old Covenant, about how to sacrifice animals. Does anybody have any questions or anything about that? Anything to add? Lisey. Right. 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 And, and, and it's so chronic. That's a great statement. It's so chronic that you can't even hardly get churches to even agree on what day the Sabbath day is anymore. If there even is a Sabbath day. You see churches that they have mass on. You can go any day of the week. It could be Friday, Saturday. You have other churches that now only convene on Saturdays. A lot of them, most, most churches, the greater number of them today, percentage is now online. People don't even get up to go to church anymore. 
And that's really catching on big time because a lot of churches have lost members and they've really lost congregational uh, seats that have been filled or not anymore. I know, I know a church right up here, a friend of mine goes there, they had 300 people, they're down to like 90 people now because they all stay home and they watch it. He told me most of them want to watch it on Zoom. And so the Lord shows us here. Teresa. We're heading right into that. Okay. Well, I tell you what. Look at look at verse. If we look at verse seven, it opens up. And upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, and just we're heading right into that. We're going to get into that discussion. That's a great point. We're going to learn that what the Sabbath day when we're supposed to. Why why are we supposed to worship on the Sabbath day, and why is it the first day of the week? That's very, very important. That's a very good point that, that Teresa brings up, and we're going to look at that. But I want to go through these names real quick, and we're heading right into that, and we do have time. So when we see Paul, he, goes, he was going to go to Syria. He was being careful. We see here that there is no doubt that there were times when Paul would get back to Jerusalem and take the tithes and take the money and meet with the presbytery. That's exactly what it was. They would go back to the Jerusalem church, meet Peter, meet the apostles, and meet the disciples. They would discuss the church business. We saw that back earlier on in Acts when they all convened and got together to talk about the man that was about the circumcision of Timothy. And they had many other issues to talk about. And Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 16, 3, And when I come, whomsoever you shall approve by your letters, then will I send to bring you liberality unto Jerusalem. The liberality talks about the excess, the money that they had received to bring back. They didn't just take that money and run. They took it back during Presbytery. They would take it to the church. And you would have men that were presided over the money, just like we do at our own presbytery meetings, and they would divide that money up and make sure that the people were taken care of and all. And that's what it means here. So, as we go forward, we're getting real close to what Teresa was brought up, which is fantastic. We see in verse 4 that there were names. There were some of the names of the Christians that were with Paul. And we see one here, Sopater of Berea. Now that should ring a bell. Anybody remember anything about Berea? Lisa and Lisi. Right. That's right. And it's they they were questioning Paul, right? Lisi. Right. That's right. Well, that kind of gives us a clue about Sopater. Can you read, Lisa, can you go back and read Acts chapter 17, 11?
That's good. So Peter was one of them. No doubt he was one of the disciples that was there when Paul went into Berea and they asked him questions. And that's a good thing. I think that's what's great about the Sunday school classes and Wednesday when there's correspondence because we can talk about these things and we can ask each other. And we can, that, this is what the Bereans did. And it's from the tenor of this verse. That was a great thing. Lisa. Sure. Right. Sure. Right. what you see here is what Lisa's talking about is basically in religion two different churches. You have one church that wants to call themselves the church and they want to interpret scripture. They don't want people to search it. They don't want them to dig and find the truth. They want to be able to interpret it themselves and that's why there's all questions being raised today about whether the disciples and the apostles and the writers of scripture actually knew whether they were writing scripture or not. There's all these questions that have been brought up and the church Of course, we know back in the 16th century, the church wanted in the lecterns to chain the Bibles, did not want it interpreted, and wanted only then to interpret it. But the Christian church that loves Christ wants to dig, and for all of us to get into Scripture, and for us to learn it, to talk about it, and our church is Christ. That's what we see with Paul on the road to Damascus. He ran into the church. The Lord said, why persecutest thou me? He didn't say, why persecutest thou the church at Ephesus or Damascus? He said, me, I am the church. And so what we do is we follow Christ, and Christ tells us he doesn't try to hide scripture from us. He doesn't try to to put a blinder over our eyes. He says, get the Bible out and read it. And so last Wednesday night, we had a really good discussion about the road to Emmaus, Cleopas and his friend, and Christ was with them. And when he leaves them and he disappears, what did they say? Does anybody remember from Wednesday night? What did he say? Right. Wasn't our hearts burning within us from the word of God 
They loved the scriptures. They loved to articulate them. We see here some of the disciples that were with Paul. There's Sopater. And we see he was a Berean. Then we see here that there was Sopater. He was a student of Paul, no doubt. We see he was most likely a friend of Paul. And in Romans 6.21, down the road, we see Timotheus, my work fellow, and Lucius, and Jason, and Sosipater. It says here, Sosipater, my kinsman, salute you. The same man, he shows what a friend that he was, and he loved him. Aristarchus, we read here in verse 4, was with Paul in Ephesus at the riots in the theater. He accompanied Paul here in Asia Minor and would accompany Paul to Rome and actually spend time in jail with him later on. We'll read towards the end of the book of Acts. Another faithful student of Paul was Gaius, a common Roman name and incredibly was spared from the cultish Roman beliefs to follow Christ. He has a Roman name and he's following Christ and he's learning. Paul is teaching him. And what, what, and then, well, yeah, the scripture says, what shall I say then? There's Timothy, Timotheus. We know a lot about Timothy. He was a real young apprentice to Paul. And Paul had already started teaching him. Later on, we'll see 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy and these wonderful words and how Paul watched over and loved Timothy. And there's another one. Here we see another one, Tychicus. He was a fellow laborer with Paul and a messenger. He will await Paul's arrival here in Troas from Macedonia he had the blessing of delivering Paul's epistle actually later on to the Ephesians and he will be the messenger to the Colossians as Paul had much help and disciples had helped him. Trophimus. We see no less than two times did faithful Trophimus accompany Paul here in Troas and then later he accompanies him to Rome. And does anybody remember? Paul, in his heart, is purposing to get into Rome. He wants to see those dispersed Jews. He's writing to the Romans. How does he wind up getting to Rome? Does anybody remember? By being, put, by being jailed. That's how he gets into Rome. He gets put into jail. And he's stuck there. Paul comes to Troas. He had appointed students, disciples, to meet him and delegate direction for them to carry out the orders, to get out the gospel, encourage and initiate Christian worship in the Asian and the Roman regions. Those we just mentioned were part of this ensemble. Some would go with Paul to Jerusalem. And we see here how some would help him deliver the money to Jerusalem later on. Paul would sail to Troas from Philippi. Now we see, going forward, in verse 6, we see the days of unleavened bread were mentioned. This was to give an account of the time of year it was. This does not intimate that Paul kept Passover after the manner of Jews like the Pharisees. He now taught that Christ is the Passover and that Christian living is now the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Can someone look up 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 7-8 through 8 and read that. 1 Corinthians 5, 7-8. through 8. Read that when you get that, please. Yeah, verse 8, thank you. See that? See how it's important to study these words? What Paul is saying, don't go back to the old sacrifices of animals. Christ is the Passover. The unleavened bread in our lives is now the purity of our lives following Christ. 
searching for perfection to be perfected unto Christ, knowing we're going to sin, that we need to repent. But then if you want to really translate and transfer this, go into that wonderful transfer from the first 11 chapters of Romans and hit chapter 12, and Paul changes his whole literary style and goes into the responsibilities we have in Christian living. He tells us we're all members of the body of Christ. He said, do not love the Lord and do not love others with dissimulation, with hypocrisy. To abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. He tells us to love one another, to look after one another. And he says that vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. And he's teaching Christian living. That's the unleavened bread that's being spoken of here in the New Covenant and how important that is. So here it is, verse 7. The Christian gathering for worship is paramount among the new Christian church. God commanded it in the Old Testament, and we see it being carried out under the new covenant after the crucifixion, resurrection, and the ascension of our Lord. Corporate worship is physical, faithful, and spiritual. Our Lord commanded Moses that we are to worship Him physically and spiritually. And here's some wonderful verses. Let me go through them quickly. Exodus chapter 25, verse 8. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Psalm 63, 2. To see thy power and thy glory, so I have seen thee in the sanctuary. Psalm 68, 24. They have seen thy goings, O God, even the goings of my God, my King, in the sanctuary. Psalm 73, 17. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood I their end. This talks about physical worship. Getting out of bed in the morning, getting dressed up to worship the Lord, even if it's your cleanest dirty shirt, and getting into God's house. Not sitting back putting it on a a 72-inch screen right before the football game. It's supposed to be done in God's sanctuary, and we see what the Christian church does here goes into a garret or a little tiny room, or it's a little house, a three-story house. Why are they worshiping in a house? They had a temple. They had a Jewish temple. There were synagogues everywhere. Because in the synagogues, they were worshiping the Lord disobediently, and they were doing it with false idols. So the Christian church is now meeting in little houses. So there was no excuse to say, we can't go to the Lord's house because it's not available. There was one right there in this house, and many people met there this day. And look at some of the things that happens here. Corporate worship, or in Old English, worth-ship, must be done exactly as God prescribes. It must be carried out like a doctor giving a specific prescription that would keep one from dying. We see in Ezekiel 5.11, Wherefore, as I live, saith the Lord God, surely because thou hast defiled my sanctuary with all thy detestable things and with all thine abominations, therefore will I diminish thee, Neither shall mine eyes spare, neither will I have any pity. Lasting you one in your, in your uh, normal life here on this earth is to have God diminish you. That's the last thing you ever want. And, you can st- and, you do- and the good way to start by having Him diminish you is to not worship Him at all or worship Him absolutely uh, disobediently. Paul will declare in the book of Romans that a preacher expositing Scripture is vitally important. Romans 10, 14. Somebody look that up and read that for a minute. I need to see something here. Romans 10, 14. And what I'm doing, as you're looking that up, we're building a case to what kind of worship was going on in this house. And this house is so important, you won't read of any other church services in the area, especially for that Sabbath day where a man died and was healed from the dead. 
You won't see that anywhere else, but here where the truth is given by Paul. Who has Romans 10, 14? Thank you, Faith. That's a, that's a good question. These are all excellent questions. How will they hear without a preacher? There needs to be somebody leading. I remember talking to a fellow who's part of the Quakers. You ever hear how they worship? All throughout Pennsylvania? They all show up at church at some point. It's not usually the same time. They all sit there. Nobody's standing up front and they just sit there until somebody gets inspired to go up and start saying something. And they just get up and somebody just starts babbling, saying something out of nowhere. There's no preparation. It's some spirit move thing. And basically the whole front's like, come in here, this is empty. And we're all sitting here and all of a sudden somebody decides to get up and say, all right, I better do something. Nobody else is going to do it. <laughs> and that's how they worship. How sad they hear without a preacher? Lisey. Really? It is creepy. Right. It's blasphemous. Right. Right. Hey, you know, that's a great point because today, look at our missionaries and look how they love Paul. You will hear Pastor Hal Ricker, he talks about Paul the Apostle many, many times. Pastor Olson talks about Paul the Apostle. What they do is they go out and Pastor Olson in the Cameroon set up churches. And how did he do it? By teaching people how to articulate Scripture, how to preach it, how to teach it, and to do it properly, and to do it in truth, in spirit and in truth. I mean, we have, we have Mrs. Roberta's husband for years spent, spent down, down at the theological seminary teaching people how, teaching men how to articulate Scripture, how to teach it, and how to do it properly. And this is what Paul was doing. So they come together... We now have got, we've brought it up to this crescendo. They meet in this little house, and it says in verse 7, first day of the week. Why? Why? That's a great, great point that Teresa brought up. She says that actually the Sabbath day is still on a Saturday, but the Lord's day is on a Sunday. Is that right or is that wrong? Sunday, first day of the week. Let's look at some verses. Let's let scripture. Let's let scripture bring this together. That sound good? Scripture. We see that Paul preached unto them and continued his speech until midnight. That's quite a sermon. He spoke till midnight, and guess what? Only one person fell asleep. <laughs> That's incredible. What day was this? When is the designated day now of our worship? And it's quite obvious the first day. It's when, you know we don't come here on Monday morning. We don't come here on Friday morning. They came together upon the first day of the week. We see that this is to signify on the first day of the week early is when our Lord defeated death and he resurrected from the dead. There's another very important reason why we come to the first day of the week. Now, if you worship the Lord and you can't ever worship him unless you worship on a Monday, is it going to send you to hell? Is it a works-oriented theology? Most likely not. Calvin believed you could worship any day of the week. And we don't, say, we don't see how Paul condemns anybody for not worshiping on the first day. There's no condemnation there. But there is a responsibility, and I think this is why we should honor it, and we should think about it and, and do it. 
Look at Matthew chapter 28, verse 1. Matthew 20. I'm sorry, did you have, I'm sorry, Lisa, I missed you. Go ahead. Right. 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 That's right. He had worship services every day of the week. <laughs> right. Right. That's right. Right. What would he talk about earlier about the, the term for Sunday morning worship being in court, being in session? Whenever the judge prescribes a day to be in court, that's the day that we are supposed to be there. Well, this is the day that's beginning. Why? The Apostolic Commission. That's a very important reason why we should worship on the Sabbath day. If Paul worshipped on the first day of the week, that is an Apostolic Commission. And that is a day that has been set aside for us to worship. So what would happen if we didn't, just didn't even know what day to worship? If, we didn't, if there wasn't a designated day? You wouldn't even know what day to get here. You wouldn't know what day to get dressed up and get ready and prepare your hearts for the Sabbath day. And so just like the, the Saturday, the, the seventh day in the Old Covenant was the day that was prescribed when Christ rose from the dead. The Christian church honors that. That's symbolic and it's a covenant with Him. And we worship Him the first day of the week. And that is the Lord's day. That is the Sabbath day. It's not Saturday. It's, it's on Sunday. If anybody, if anybody can prove me wrong, you're welcome to do that. But it says in Mark 16, 2, And very early in the morning of the first day of the week, they came unto the sepulcher at the rising of the sun. Luke 24, 1, another parallel verse. Now upon the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came unto the sepulcher, bringing the spices which they had prepared and certain others with them. And here we see Paul again reifying worship on the first day of the week in 1 Corinthians 16, 2. Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay him in store, as God hath prospered him, and there be no gatherings when I come. And here's a massive lesson, that if you put these pieces together, and if you put the clues together, you see what John the Beloved was speaking about in Revelations chapter 1, verse 5. And from Jesus, who is the faithful witness, and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, Unto him that loved us and washes us from our sins in his own blood. He comes back and he says in verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. When he speaks of the Lord's day, the clues leading up to the Lord's day are the day that he resurrected from the dead. That's the first day of the week. That's what John is speaking about. And so 
we see that the first day of the week is, is when we worship the Lord, and that's why we're here today. I mean, we can, we can really get into this a lot further. We can save it for the, for the next time, but we see how the apostles worshipped on the first day of the week. And if you read about Peter, he did also. And so this meeting of Troas basically comes together in a form of worship, corporate worship in this little house on the first day of the week. Answers in Genesis put, put out a statement on, I know what Teresa's thinking about because she's been witnessing to a friend of hers for a while. They put out a statement on, on this new, it's kind of a new, called the Hebrew Roots Movement. And they put, I have a link for that. If you want to read that, it's fantastic. And it talks about the Sabbath day. I can read you a little bit here. Hebrew Roots Movement worships Sabbath day on Saturday. Here is a statement from Answers in Genesis. It is difficult to document the movement's history because of its lack of organizational structure, but the modern HRM has been influenced in some ways by the Seventh-day Adventism and the Worldwide Church of God. I've got a long drop-down article here. We can read it next time, but that's all you have to know. If they're following the pattern of the Seventh-day Adventists and they're following the pattern of these world churches, we know already... That's, that's, there's, that's a real danger in that. So that's why we have the first day of the week. We'll finish here. We'll pick up next time. and We'll pick right up there. Let's finish with prayer. Lisa, go ahead first. Right. Right. When, and it says when the sun came up on the first day of the week. We see how the Lord died. That's right. Good point. Amen. Brother Greg, could you close us this morning? Thank you.